0: evidence and answers. How has philosophy at the university changed? And why do many philosophy classes destabilize the faith of many Christian students? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zuckerman Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith, Today in our broadcast, Pat and his guest, Dr. Richard Howell, will be discussing how the philosophy classes in the university system have changed, and what effects this has on our Christian students. Now with part one of this two-part interview, is our host, Pat.
1: You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith and hope in Christ, and biblical answers to the challenges of today. Well, almost every student at the university is required to take Philosophy 101. Unfortunately, the philosophy classes at the university often begin to undermine the faith of many Christian students. Once theology and philosophy were allies in academia, but today they seem to be enemies. How has philosophy at the university changed? Why do so many philosophy classes destabilize the faith of many Christian students? Well, to help us understand philosophy at the university today is Dr. Richard Howe. Dr. Howe is professor of philosophy and apologetics and the Norm Geisler Chair of Christian Apologetics at Southern Evangelical Seminary, one of the finest seminaries there in Charlotte, North Carolina. He earned his Ph.D. in philosophy from the University of Arkansas. He is a writer as well as a public speaker and debater in churches, speaks at many conferences and university campuses on issues concerning Christian apologetics and philosophy. So he's becoming a regular on this show. So, Dr. Howell, welcome back to Evidence and Answers.
2: Listen, thank you so much. I hope your audience can put up with my egregious Southern accent as we plow our way <laughs> through philosophy here.
1: <laughs> yes. Now, some people may be asking, what does it mean to be the Norman Geisler Chair of Christian Apologetics? Does that mean you most represent the spirit and the mind of Dr. Geisler there?
2: That's right. And it, it, the, the chair was founded in in his honor, and typically what happens with a chair in someone's honor is that's separately funded by donors other than just the general fund of an institution. So this was something that was set up years ago. Of course, usually the person in whose honor it is, if they're still alive, they, they're the first recipient. So now I'm the second. He's gone to be with the Lord, and it just worked out, you know, and I'm just so honored. Uh, probably more than anything else I get at the seminary to occupy this chair. I mean, Norm Geister was not only a mentor of mine, professor of mine when I was at Dallas Seminary, but he became a colleague. And almost like a second father to me. So I, I just am so humbled to be able to, to occupy a chair in his honor.
1: Yes, that's quite an honor there. Well, you know, I was talking to another great apologist. We were visiting here in Hawaii. We had him at our conference, Dr. Gary Habermas. And we were visiting the Pearl Harbor Memorial together. And there was a guy sitting next to us who struck up a conversation with us. And then he looked at Gary and he said, What do you do? And <laughs> Gary looked at him and said, uh, I'm a philosophy professor. And the guy kind of looked at Gary and Gary looked at him and said, oh, you can say it. You can say it. Just go ahead and say it. And the guy (laughs) smiled and he said, say what? And Gary said, I hated that class. That's all right. You can say it. I hated that class. You know, and the guy just, we all just uh, cracked up there on the boat. But a lot of Christians feel that way, you know, about philosophy and taking philosophy. But Richard, you know, tell us why a Christian should be interested in philosophy.
2: I appreciate the the fact that Gary had that experience, because when when you're getting a graduate degree in the old days, when you used to have to spend all day registering for classes, you invariably get into those cliche questions about, well, what are you majoring in? And there's nothing like telling somebody you're getting a degree in philosophy for them. And it was usually one of two reactions. And one of them was, well, what are you going to do with that? You know, what do you do with a philosophy degree? The other was sort of like what what Gary got. It says, uh, uh, you know, I did, I took a class and I'll never do that again. Yeah, so... I think there are several reasons why, especially as Christians, we should be interested. And when I say we, I don't necessarily mean in anything we're going to say uh, this hour that somehow every Christian is obligated to go out and get a philosophy degree, necessarily. But somebody among us needs to be trafficking in these topics, just like there needs to be Christians in the natural sciences and other disciplines and in the workforce in order to spread the message of Christ and be salt and light. so. As I see it, I think there's really two main reasons why Christians should be interested. One is sort of a negative, and the other is sort of a positive. C.S. Lewis said it this way. The negative would be something like this. Here's a quote from Lewis. Good philosophy must exist, if for no other reason, because bad philosophy needs to be answered. Now, of course, we'd have to explore, well, what's good philosophy and what's bad philosophy? Uh, Geisler said it this way. He said, we cannot properly beware of philosophy, you know, it's Paul tells us in Colossians 2.8, we cannot properly beware of philosophy unless we be aware of philosophy. And then my favorite, I think, of them all was uh, Thomas Aquinas, when he said, seeing that the teacher of sacred scripture must at times oppose the philosophers, it's necessary for him to make use of philosophy. And in that sort of vein there of Aquinas' statement, I think there are a number of fundamental things that we cherish Really, not only as Christians, but as healthy human beings that are being assaulted and have been assaulted by bad philosophy. I mean, take something like truth. If if, if you ask a question, well, uh, to a Christian, well, do you believe the Bible is inerrant? And they say, well, yes, I believe the Bible is inerrant. But you couldn't know that the Bible is inerrant if you didn't know what an error was, right? right? But you couldn't know what an error was if you didn't know what truth is. But for better or for worse trying to understand, well, what does it mean when we say something is true? That's a philosophical question. So even something as cherished as biblical inerrancy, we tacitly admit some kind of commitment to what it means to be true before we could even defend inerrancy. And you could just go down a list of things, what it means to be good, what is good for a human being, what is a good human being. These kind of things are under assault, especially in our culture as Americans, what it is to even be a human being. You know, the whole transhumanism movement, how many parts can you replace with prosthetic biotechnology before it's, quote, no longer a human being? And I think to myself, that question already doesn't take seriously whether there is a such thing as human nature. And, of course, that has implications for other aspects. In fact, if something occurred to me the other day with all this controversy going on about potential Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade, it occurred to me how much life itself is just under assault in, in not only just the philosophies, but a lot of the political thinking. I mean, the abortion is killing babies who are just beginning life, and euthanasia is killing the old that they're trying to seek to live out their life. Homosexuality is an assault on the very manner of procreation and propagation of life. Lots of philosophies deny God's existence, who's the creator of life. And, of course, those same philosophies would reject the Lord Jesus, who's the giver of eternal life. So even life itself, I think, is something being attacked. But just quickly, the positive side, uh, you know, philosophy, the word, means the love of wisdom. And to be sure, wisdom ultimately comes from God, as all good things do, James tells us. But more to the point, as Christians, we're committed to the truth about reality. So after refuting these attacks on our cherished beliefs that bad philosophy brings— we have to be prepared now. Well, what do we replace that with? If this bad philosophy is giving the wrong answer to this question or that question, then what is the right answer? And what that right answer is, is something I think at least to a large degree is going to arise out of a strategic application of really sound philosophy. Maybe we can explore what, what, at least in my opinion, what that, the contours of of quote unquote sound philosophy even is.
1: Yes. You know, and Learning from Dr. Geisler, you know, he stated that, well, apologetics begins with reason. In fact, you even need reason before the gospel. I mean, it's kind of the basis of where we start logical thinking from. Uh, Explain that for us, uh, that this is where we begin, Christian, non-Christian, this is where we begin.
2: Absolutely. You know, this whole question of how does faith and reason relate One of the things that I say to audiences to try to sell them on the significance of the question, because you and I both know sometimes people will respond to these questions as if it's just ivory tower philosophy geeks and apologetic geeks talking to one another. But if you read Robert Riley's book, The Closing of the Muslim Mind, and he shows the connection between how medieval Islam uh, rejected reason over faith, just the word of Allah, and that was it. Don't think about it. Don't examine it. Just take God's word in their idea of God being Allah. Just take his word, and that's the end of it. He makes the connection of how this eventually arrested medieval Islamic world in their cultural development. They wow. weren't open to new ideas in science, in economics, in private property, individual liberties, and these kind of things. Whereas Christianity in Christian Europe came to a subtle view that there was a sort of a symbiotic relationship between faith and reason. Reason being, in effect, coming to know something on the basis of the demonstration that it's true. You, you understand this scientific proof or this mathematical proof. You understand the demonstration. You agree with the conclusion. That's called reason. Faith, in contrast, would be taking something on authority. So for us as Christians, we would say, well, the Bible is our authority as the inspired word of God. But it's reason that enables a person to judge whether a given authority is competent. You don't just believe anybody that claims to be an authority, right? So we don't just pick a book from history and say, well, this must be the Word of God and that's the end of it. There's got to be some way to know that the Quran is not the Word of God and the Bible is the Word of God, that the Book of Mormon is not the Word of God and the Bible is. There's got to be some way to adjudicate that debate, and that debate is what reason comes into play. But once reason is demonstrated, the competent authority, in this case, God, then there are things in the Bible that we couldn't have known by the powers of reason. I mean, history can prove that Jesus died on the cross, but history can't prove that his death on the cross pays for my sins. Well, why do we believe it pays for our sins? Because we think God told us that in the Bible. Well, then I have to decide, am I going to trust God? And that's what faith is. So there have been pockets in a lot of world religions that would have uh, you know resistance to reason. But I think historically you'll find Christianity all the way since the not only the apostles but the church fathers onward have had a relatively healthy attitude about the function of reason as God has created us to be able to come to know a lot of truths that he's revealed about himself not only through creation but also through his word.
1: Yes. Now, this next question is a very big question. (laughs) So, uh, if you can, can you give us a brief history of philosophy? So, you know, we can kind of get a taste of how it began and some of the ways it has changed over the centuries.
2: Yeah. So, it really begins in the ancient Greeks, uh, going about the 8th century BC onward until a few centuries into the Christian era. And a lot of the things you find among the ancient Greeks, you also find in other quote-unquote, philosophies around the world. So it's not really confined to Western civilization. It really is something that stems from human beings interacting with the world. And so human beings are human beings no matter where they are in the world, whether it's East or West, or anything in between. And so the interesting thing that happened, though, is when the Greek-thinking world was impacted by Christianity. And it's a fun topic to explore. Maybe we can do that sometime. But the Christians brought teachings to the table that caused a lot of the Greek thinkers to try to reconcile those things with other things they already thought were true by their philosophy. And you can trace this, what they call ancient, the philosophers divide history into ancient, medieval, modern, and contemporary. And so the medieval era then starts with Augustine at the late 4th into the 5th century, and that's traced all the way up to Descartes in the 16th century. That's the medieval And then you've got Descartes from the uh, 16th century up until probably close to the 20th is the modern era, and now we're in the contemporary era. So we're still interacting to greater or lesser degrees with the fundamental questions that the Greeks brought to the table that Christians then have considered those questions, and how would we understand those questions in light of how God has revealed himself to his creation and how God has revealed himself to his prophets and apostles and the Lord Jesus.
1: Yeah, so ancient philosophy would begin with Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and then medieval. Is that when Christian theology really, you know, invaded philosophy and the two came together there during the medieval period?
2: Yes, and so basically, I mean, it even goes back to uh, Thales, which is close to the 8th century BC. It's about a contemporary of Habakkuk. doesn't seem to be any indication that the Jews had any intersection with the Greeks. But yes, Plato, uh, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle are probably the big names. And then I think the thing that really uh, sort of launched the intersection of Christianity and philosophy in the, what we now call the Middle Ages, that would be again the end of the fourth, beginning of the fifth century, was the fact that by this time, Christianity had not only been decriminalized, but it had been made legal. Before that, Christianity was suffering under the heavy hand of persecution of the Romans. But eventually when Constantine is converted, and then subsequent to Constantine, he's converted so he decriminalizes the Christian faith, and then eventually it becomes the legal religion of Rome. That really removed a lot of fetters, uh, hampering the Christians to really publicly interact with culture and ideas. So Augustine is right. He's one of these that comes on pretty close to that era. You have a few things going on before him, like the Council of Nicaea, for example, in 325 that a, that Constantine himself convened, and started to deal with these things so once they, once they had the freedom to sort of interact publicly with ideas, that's when the, you know it's really a floodgate of thinkers and in fact, interesting, right around the time of Augustine, you have just an explosion of luminaries, people like Ambrose, uh, the Bishop of Milan, or a number whose names may or may not be familiar that just come on the scene who are serious philosophical thinkers and theological thinkers whose writings we still cherish even today
1: yes and then in the modern era i believe we see a switch here or a significant change as the naturalist worldview now begins through the enlightenment uh, begins to dominate western civilization so wouldn't you say there's a significant change from the medieval philosophy that had a lot of theology in there to modern philosophy, which tried to take God out of the world of philosophy there.
2: Absolutely. You know, you can cut a rose off of the uh, of the vine. The rose is not going to instantly show signs of its death, but eventually it just turns black and manifests the fact that it's really been dead ever since it was cut off. And I think in the flow of ideas, historically, you see a similar pattern. You can, I think we can identify the seeds Of where the death was actually sown but it doesn't manifest instantly it just begins to manifest over the course of centuries and so i think you're right it's conspicuous that in the middle ages all the intellectuals believed in god by the 19th century if not a little sooner pretty much none of them believe in god so just in a few short, short centuries christianity at the intellectual level has just atrophied and one has to ask well what's what's going on what what happened there now some things might have explained why ideas proliferated so much faster than even in the middle ages and there are kind of just mundane exam, uh, mundane explanations like well the printing press for example came about at the latter part of the 15th century and once you could print things you could ideas could spread and interact with other ideas a lot more quickly. But that's just an instrumental call. That doesn't really explain the content of the ideas. It just explains whatever those ideas are. They're being promulgated a lot quicker than they were a few centuries earlier. And I think what began to happen that facilitated the Enlightenment, at least one thing, is that a paradigm shift really happened, I think, around the time of Descartes, where people were going to be motivated to do philosophical and maybe even theological thinking along the contours and methods of mathematics. Descartes was a mathematician. He wanted to use the methods of math to try to answer the questions of philosophy. And I would go, well, the problem is the tools of mathematics only examine a small sliver of the nature of reality itself, just that quantifiable aspect. But if you try to treat everything as if it could be quantified, then you're going to leave out deeply philosophical things like natures. All of a sudden, you, don't find, you find them no longer talking about God's nature or human nature or ethics or morality. Everything just becomes mathematicized. Well, mathematics is good for the natural sciences, right? You know, the uh, gravitational constant or a lot of the Newtonian physics that comes around, math does great for that. So the natural sciences begin to flourish in the uh, 16th into the 17th century. But at the same time, the metaphysics begins to languish. All of a sudden, questions about God's nature and whether there are angels and what are human beings and what does it mean to be good, and those questions just begin to fade off because they're not really uh, susceptible to that method. And that just gives this nature kind of uh, eye orientation more and more prominent. Now, to be sure, early on, most of these natural science, in fact, I would say all of them, were theists, and probably nearly all of them were Christian theists, including Descartes, including Newton, including Babbage, or Galileo, or Copernicus, or whomever. But eventually, I think the method began to just cause the, the theological dimension of these questions and their philosophical aspects to just fade away. And now it ends up, by the time you get to the late 19th and 20th century, You have this flagrant kind of naturalism that that you mentioned, this sort of positivism, this scientism, as we sometimes call it. Well, because the things of God are not really mathematizable, you know, you can't really do an equation to figure out anything about God. It It just falls off the plate. Nobody considers it anymore. Now we're having to pay a price of the implications of all that. It's dehumanizing. It evacuates morality of its substance. And, and things like that, and now, now we're suffering the consequences, I think, in Western civilization.
1: So tell us the switch that took place between modern philosophy and contemporary philosophy. What happened there?
2: Yeah, so, you know, students sometimes will ask me, sort of related to, the, what's the difference between the classical approach and the analytic approach? And one of the most conspicuous differences is that contemporary philosophy less and less began to deal with philosophical and theological questions less and less along the categories of Greek philosophy. Now, someone may say, well, so much the better. They might might think that Greek philosophy was, was a bad thing in the first place. That's a fair debate to have. But in my estimation, the contours of the categories and the methods and stuff that the Christians inherited from the Greeks really served Christian thinking and theology very well. In fact, I would challenge anybody to try to give a robust definition of the Trinity without appealing to categories that the Christians got from the ancient Greeks. The distinction between an essence and a person, for example. God is one in essence and three in person. Or hypostatic union of Christ, that he's got human nature and a divine nature. Well, nature is a philosophical category. So those categories began to wane. Here's one reason, Pat, I think sort of a, an ad hominem fallacy in a way that some people find a disdain for ancient categories. And that is, admittedly, a lot of the writings of the ancient Greeks, and not surprisingly, when they would give illustrations of some of their philosophical points, they would use illustrations from nature that we now don't believe are true in physics, for example. You know, like the ancient Greeks thought that light made air transparent, and that's why you could see in the daytime and not see at nighttime. They thought that nighttime, then the air was was just opaque, and you couldn't see through it. Okay, so now we know that that's not what light is, and that's not how we see. But the mistake is to think that because the illustration used an antiquated physics or biology, that somehow the point that they're trying to illustrate was antiquated and false. Well, that doesn't follow. Uh, it could have just been that it was a bad illustration for a true point. And you find a lot of critics of ancient Thought, if I told somebody, "Well, I'm an Thomas Aristotelian Thomas," to them it would sound like I'm asking them to go back to the Middle Ages to do their dentistry. It's like, "Well, I get my teeth filled the way they did in the Middle Ages," and people would just think you're crazy. But but it's a fallacy to think I really track this philosophical tradition from Aristotle up through Aquinas. They look at you with the same expression that you're crazy, as if somehow I was buying into something that was equivalent to to the medieval dentistry. And I go, "That's that's not it at all." Now again it's a fair debate to have as to whether those categories are viable or for that matter, even true. That's fair, but sometimes it doesn't even get a hearing in a lot of contemporary situations.
1: We did a brief overview of the history of philosophy here. So let's talk about philosophy at the university today. I mean, at one time we were learning classical philosophy. You may still get that at Christian and Catholic universities, but what's the difference between what we would call classical philosophy and what we see at the typical public university today.
2: Yeah, you know, both my master's degree and PhD in in philosophy were from state universities. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I discovered was broadly considered university philosophy departments are not that particularly hostile to Christianity. What I discovered is that they were hostile to evangelical Christianity. And for that matter, they were also hostile to uh, conservatism more broadly, like politically. So I think a lot of people would be surprised to know how many state universities in the U.S. actually have Christians in the philosophy department. In fact, when I was a student, even if people argued against me for my Christian views, but everybody argued against everybody else in the department for their views. So I was just one view among a lot of views in most people's mind. But if you tried to go for something like biblical inerrancy, or you're saved only through Christ, that there is a hell, if you started talking about that kind of stuff then you ran into a lot of a lot of animus from uh, not only the philosophy department but the university as a whole and i think without being too oversimplistic about it i think overwhelmingly an anglo-american philosophy department in a university is going to be this analytic philosophy this post 20th century or post 19th century philosophical method
0: Once again, we've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence & Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. You'll find we have a wide variety of different topics that will make for an incredible conference series. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, your Bible study, or even schedule a conference at your church or location, give him a call in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence & Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Be sure to use our search engine for available resources. We have everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. To keep quality broadcasts, like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous financial support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to partner with us, please head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org i yeah.